0: We read the Word of God in Proverbs 23. The text is made up of the last seven verses of the chapter 29 through 35, which we will not read a second time. The Word of God in Proverbs 23 When thou sittest to eat with a ruler, consider diligently what is before thee, and put a knife to thy throat, if thou be a man given to appetite. Be not desirous of his dainties, for they are deceitful meat. Labor not to be rich. Cease from thine own wisdom. Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven, Eat thou not the bread of him that hath an evil eye, neither desire thou his dainty meats. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, saith he to thee, but his heart is not with thee. The morsel which thou hast eaten shalt thou vomit up, and lose thy sweet words. Speak not in the ears of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of thy words. Remove not the old landmark, and enter not into the fields of the fatherless, For their Redeemer is mighty, he shall plead their cause with thee. Apply thine heart unto instruction, and thine ears to the words of knowledge. Withhold not correction from the child, for if thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die. Thou shalt beat him with the rod, and shalt deliver his soul from hell. My son, if thine heart be wise, my heart shall rejoice, even mine. Yea, my reign shall rejoice when thy lips speak right things. Let not thine heart envy sinners, but be thou in the fear of the Lord all the day long. For surely there is an end, and thine expectation shall not be cut off. Hear thou, my son, and be wise, and guide thine heart in the way. Be not among wine-bibbers, among riotous eaters of flesh. For the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty, and drowsiness shall clothe a man with rags. Hearken unto thy father that begat thee, and despise not thy mother when she is old. Buy the truth and sell it not, also wisdom and instruction and understanding. The father of the righteous shall greatly rejoice, and he that begetteth a wise child shall have joy of him. Thy father and thy mother shall be glad, and she that bear thee shall rejoice. My son, give me thine heart, and let thine eyes observe my ways. For a whore is a deep ditch, and a strange woman is a narrow pit." She also lieth in wait as for a prey, and increaseth the transgressors among men. And now begins our text. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babbling? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? They that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. At the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. They have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. This far we read the Word of God. Beloved saints in Jesus Christ, among the many spiritual dangers that the children of God face in every age and in every context, two of them, are brought out in this chapter and in this text, the dangers of wine and the dangers of women. The two often go hand in hand. So that in the chapter we read, before the mention of drunkenness and its folly, the spiritual father admonishes his son against a whore and a strange woman. And then, even within the admonition of the text against the sin of drunkenness, the Father points out that one of the effects of drunkenness will be, "...Thine eyes shall behold strange women." Wine and women. Neither of them wrong when used rightly. A little wine in moderation. And one woman, the wife whom the Lord gavest thee. But when one seeks after wine and women in abundance, one sins. The word of God in the text we need to take to heart today. In the first place, because we live in a a society that is saturated and infatuated with wine and women. And as the church of Jesus Christ lives in an evil culture, though she's called to live antithetically and to oppose the sins of that culture, more often she finds that she is instead attracted to the sins of the culture and might well give herself over to them. The second place... Then we must avoid wine and women and take the admonition to heart because we are the church, the bride of Jesus Christ Himself, and are to hold forth and live as though He lives in us, to manifest His glory, and to be witnesses of Him. And He it is ultimately who in the text says, My Son, My Redeemed Child. Beware of wine and women. In the third place, we must beware of these because it's the tendency of the human nature, even that of the redeemed child of God, to think that he can handle sin up to a limit. We know what God says, don't even start. And we say, well, there's an end. If you start, there's an end of that path. And I know the dangers of the end, but maybe I can start. Maybe I can move the line from the beginning. God says, don't even begin. Maybe I can move it a little ways down the pathway so that I can begin to enjoy some of the pleasure of these things, but not get burned, not get caught, not get drunk, And that sinful and foolish thinking in our midst, again is countered in the text. As the Holy Spirit says, the wise one says, no, don't start. But that is our mentality. So that perhaps some of the young people among us think that in their youth especially, it's cool to give oneself over to wine and women, and then maybe even some of the older adults among us. The, those who ought to be more mature also live in such a way as to give themselves over to wine and to women. There's a Word of God for us tonight. It addresses the folly that is inherent in each one of us by nature, and it sets forth the danger the sin of that foolish way, and calls us to wisdom. Wisdom is the Gospel in the book of Proverbs. On the one hand, wisdom in the form of pointing us by way of the warnings to the right way to live. There's a way that the child of God ought to live that is a wise way. But wisdom in an even deeper sense. For in Proverbs 8, we learn that wisdom is a person. An eternal person. A person who lived with God and is God, Jesus Christ Himself. He it is who calls us to avoid wine and avoid women and to seek righteousness. I call your attention to our text this evening under the theme, The Drunkard's Folly. Notice first, that he's filled with wine, that describes the drunkard. Secondly, that he's deceived with wine, that sets forth his folly. And thirdly, that we are here admonished by Jesus Christ to wisdom. It becomes evident from the text that it's speaking not just of the drinking or partaking of an alcoholic beverage, In moderation. One might argue that just on the basis of the fact that it speaks of wine, and point out the fact that wine is not inherently wrong. Jesus drank wine. The Apostle Paul exhorted Timothy to drink a little wine for thy stomachs sake and thy oft infirmities. And in the Old Testament, it was the custom to drink wine as a common beverage. But there are points in the text that underscore that what's being warned against is not the drinking of wine itself in moderation, but drunkenness. That is, the use of alcoholic beverages to the point of intoxication. The first evidence of that is that verse 30 describes one who tarries long at the wine and who goes to seek mixed wine. Mixed wine is a wine mixed with honey and spices to make it sweeter and more delicious tasting. But the description is of one who tarries long. In other words, while it may be a proper use of the gift of alcoholic beverages at the end of a long day at work to enjoy a beer or a glass of wine at the dinner table, then having enjoyed it, one gets up and one goes about his work again But the text speaks of one who can't quite leave the table. He tarries long. And it speaks of one who seeks mixed wine. That is not just one who enjoys it. The finest of the best. But one who says, this is my goal in life. I need to go find the best. I need to buy it. I need to have it on my table. And if I need to travel a distance and pay a fair price for it, I'm going to do that. This matters to him far more than at all. That first of all makes clear that the text is speaking of one who is a drunkard. In the second place, that the text is speaking of a drunkard is clear from the fact that that description of him in verse 30 answers the six questions of verse 29. The inspired writer is observing a certain kind of person. And he's describing the characteristics of that person. Really, the symptoms of drunkenness. And he says, who is this person? And the answer is, they that tarry long at the wine. They that go to seek mixed wine. This one has woe and sorrow. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? He's describing one who is moaning and groaning. Their life is one of trouble and turmoil. Now, they might not always admit it. They might act as though their life is the happiest of all lives, but in drunkenness they give vent to their inner heart and show that they have grief and sorrow. Who hath contentions and who hath babbling? The word babbling refers to a manifesting of anxiety. That very thing perhaps which some are trying to cover by their drunkenness and to ignore comes out in their speech. And the contentions refers to one who's ready to be argumentative and who's ready to go to blows if need be. The first epistle to Timothy in chapter 3 calls him a brawler. Furthermore, who hath wounds without cause. He stumbles. She falls. They run into things. And so they are bruised. Maybe they break some bones. And without cause, that's of course that's of course their story to you. I don't know how it happened. Verse 35 indicates that. Or somebody did it to me. They have stricken me. And it was not sick. They have beaten me and... I felt it. Now, I don't know when. Who hath wounds without cause? And finally, who hath redness of eyes? With reference to the dull look about the eyes of one who is given over to drunkenness. A little wine makes a merry heart, said the inspired prophet elsewhere in the book of Proverbs. But too much is not a medicine. Now, we have to take our text and understand it in the light of a New Testament reality. And as we do that, we're going to, in the first instance tonight, the first of two, present our text in light of the Gospel. Something, of course, that always needs to be done. But all the more, when we're being admonished against a sin... The admonition against drunkenness does not come to you and to me, and the power to heed the admonition, it is not suggested, is found inherent in you and me, apart from grace. But it is the Holy Spirit admonishing, and it is therefore the Holy Spirit saying that in Him and in Jesus Christ is the power to avoid the sin. The New Testament text then, to which I'm drawing your attention and explaining our text in light of, is Ephesians 5 Verse 18, "...and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit." There is in that text a contrast between two things, two powers which fill a man. And these two powers are antithetical. You cannot be filled with both at the same time. You are filled either with one Or the other, the one is wine, the other is the Holy Spirit. Be not filled with wine, wherein is excess, debauchery, sin. But be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the chapter goes on to suggest that in that way you find the power to live a new and godly life. When the Holy Spirit, in Ephesians 5.18, contrasts being filled with the Spirit and being filled with wine, He does not mean to teach that everyone who ever got drunk was completely devoid of the Holy Spirit. That is, He does not mean to teach that if you are drunk, you are not a saved child of God. When he says, be filled with the Spirit, he's not referring to our doing anything to become regenerated, to become believers, to possess the Spirit as regards those gifts of salvation. And you as good Reformed people can understand that. There is nothing we do to receive and take to ourselves the Spirit in that sense. When he says, be filled with the Spirit, he's referring to the life of sanctification. Sanctification. And again, understanding that the power of the sanctified life is found in Jehovah God and in Christ and in His Holy Spirit. He is driving home to the church in Ephesus and to Christians in every age that when I seek God and the power of God to live a new and holy life, and the Holy Spirit in answer to my prayers fills me, that it enables me to live out of the power of my new man, then I will not be filled with wine. And at what point in my life I should say, my old man in me, but I enjoy wine in great quantities, and I'm going to enjoy its pleasures tonight, then I will not, At that moment, I am not. And when the wine takes me over, I will not be living a sanctified life. You can't be filled with wine and live a life of sanctification at the same time. And I bring that text in to underscore for you and for me then what the real reason is why drunkenness is sin. God forbids it, that of course is true. And then a person may ask, but why does God forbid it? And ask that not challenging God, as if maybe He gave me a prohibition that's really unreasonable. But ask, what is the divine wisdom behind it? And here we have it. The very nature of wine is that it takes over a person's impulses, judgments, and very person. And it leads him into the path of sin. The Holy Spirit directs us in righteousness. Now, you and I. As children of God, as regenerated believers, as those whose sins are covered by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, as those in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, Desire to be filled with this Spirit and always to live out of the power of the Spirit. And we can. That is the gospel in this text, as it's set in light of the New Testament. We can take the warning to heart. So doing, we can follow the example of our Lord and Savior Himself. To follow His example is not all there is to Christianity. The very essence of Christianity is not just following Christ's example, but seeing Him to be the only and all-sufficient and complete Savior, and looking to His death as atoning for sin, even the shedding of a blood to cover my sin of drunkenness if I've been guilty of that sin. But also, Christians follow the example of Jesus Christ, who never sinned, but also is not like the Pharisees who would go about pretending that He never drank and so stayed, as it were, ten miles away from temptation. He drank wine. He drank wine at the wedding feast of Cain of Galilee. He drank wine in other situations. This gave the occasion for some to say of Him, He is a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber. Matthew 11, verse 19. But He rejected that charge as being blasphemous, for He wasn't a glutton and He wasn't a wine-bibber. He drank wine and He used food, the good gifts of God, In the service of God, to the glory of God. And His example, by His power, you and I can follow. Now by way of application, I want to make three points. The first then is that our text is obviously warning us against a sin to which we are prone, and a sin which is prevalent in our own society and in our own churches especially where you find money, and we do have wealth, you also find an enjoyment of luxuries. And where you find an enjoyment of luxuries, you are also able to find sometimes an abuse of those luxuries. And therefore... The text is speaking to us. It might be that a man here or a woman here says, but I never have gotten drunk and I never really am tempted to drunkenness and yet the Word is still an admonition to you and to me about a sin to, of which our nature is capable of committing. In the second place, there is a principle in the text which applies more broadly than just to the sin of intoxication, and the use of intoxicants, that is, of beer and of wine. The principle applies to any substance that affects our judgment, and to the use of that substance, including the use of prescription drugs, not as prescribed. It may be the use of prescription drugs has an effect on our judgment too. And then there's a warning label. And then you and I are prone to take that warning label to heart and to say I'd better not operate machinery. I can feel in me the effects of this drug. The drug will have a good use. Its use is temporary for now. But in our culture, some become addicted to drugs available by prescription only. And in that way, the principle of the text applies as well. A person might say, I'm not a drunkard. I have this problem instead, but the Bible never talks about it. Well, by implication, it does. And so to expand on that, the principle of the text applies also to narcotics and other street drugs and hard drugs. And I bring that up specifically because we live in a state in which these have now, some of them, marijuana specifically, have been legalized. And a young person might say, but it's legal. Well, it's legal in the eyes of the state. What does God think about it and its use? That's the question. And if you say the Bible nowhere speaks of it, I say, but there's a principle in the text that addresses the matter. And the principle is, under what power are you, and in what power are you living? And if a bit of wine and a bit of beer clouds the judgment, then some of these drugs cloud the judgment far more quickly And immediately, then there's a warning. And thirdly, by way of application, to show that the principle of the text applies broadly to every one of us, even if we should say, but I've never been drunk, and I never desire to be drunk. The text speaks of a man who, when he becomes aware of his sin, says, well... I want to go commit that sin again. That's really the end of the chapter. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. In other words, the text is speaking of one who is impenitent in his sin. Now let that principle be driven home to you and to me, and let's meditate on it so that we can see that in some way in the text is a warning to each one of us in the particular circumstances of our own life. Are you one? who when your sin is pointed out to you says, but I don't care, I enjoyed it, and I want to go commit it again, then you are as big a fool as the drunkard. The drunkard's folly is that he has been deceived by wine. That secondly, in much of the text exposes the folly of drunkenness. In the first place, I have five points here. In the first place, the text points us to what there is about the wine that deceives. That's verse 31. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. The appeal of wine is its earthly properties. It's red. And it looks delicious, this red liquid. The last two parts of verse 31 are not translated so in the King James as to give us the exact idea, but they are difficult phrases to translate for all that too. When it giveth His color in the cup literally means when His eyes are gleaming in the cup. And the reference is to the fact that wine has a sparkle to it. And that also is part of the allure of wine. It looks delicious. And then it moveth itself aright probably better translated, it goes on its way smoothly. That is, it tastes good and it goes down the throat very easily. Now, two properties of wine. Its taste and its look. Therein lies its deceptiveness. Because it says, I'm delicious. Am I not? Drink me. Drink another of Me. Drink yet more of Me. I am even more delicious. Am I not? And therein is its deceptiveness. Remember that Satan deceived Eve by causing her to behold a fruit that God had said was not good, but pointing out to her that it both looked good and would be good for food. Remember, in other words, not to judge a book merely by its cover, a thing merely by how it looks, for therein is the deceptiveness of wine. In the second place, the text points out what exactly it is that wine does deceptively. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red. Don't behold its properties and come to a conclusion about It From that, at the last, when it's all over, it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. So wine is personified in the text. It's spoken of as though it is a person. And it can be because Satan is working through it. It says to you... I look delicious, I am delicious, I am tasty, drink more of me. And when you do it, and do it again, and do it again, it says, now I've got you where I want you. It's like a trap. You bait a trap with something that looks attractive and tastes delicious. So that any animal that you want to catch in your trap is snared. And at the moment that animal is caught in a trap, you say, that's exactly what I wanted. That's what wine does. At the last, it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. A serpent and an adder. Here referring both to poisonous creatures at the best To be bit and stung by one is to endure pain for a while. At the worst, it is to endure death. And so it is with wine. It has been the occasion for the death of many physically. It is the means whereby many are brought to their spiritual and everlasting ruin. And even those who aren't completely ruined, destroyed, or brought to death must say at some point, It did me harm. In the third place, the text points out the spiritual harm that wine works. And that's verse 33. Thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. Strange women are a temptation to every man at least a potential temptation to every man. But why then does the Holy Spirit tell the drunkard that this will be part of the spiritual consequences and danger of the sin of drunkenness? And the answer is twofold. First of all, because being intoxicated lowers one's inhibitions. And whereas one might say, I see a strange woman there, but I'm not interested. And I'm not going to look a second time. I have a wife at home. She's faithful to me. I desire the grace of God to be faithful to her. Whereas one filled with the Spirit might say that, one filled with wine says, but I can have something enjoyable now. Why wait? In the second place, beholding strange women is a specific danger and effective drunkenness. Because the drunkard often finds himself in the wrong company to start with. In other words, the child of God, filled with a spirit, finding himself in good, godly company, won't see as many strange women, won't go where strange women are found. But one who's very ready to give himself over to the sin of drunkenness has no problem associating with others who give themselves over to the same sin. Thine eyes shall behold. Strange women, where the word behold doesn't just merely mean you're going to see them, but it means they will attract and tempt you and you will be snared. In the second place, the spiritual consequence of drunkenness in verse 33 is that thine heart shall utter perverse things. Now my heart sometimes thinks evil things, and yours does too, and probably our hearts do that every day. That's the reality of the old man of sin living in us. Are you not glad, though, that those evil thoughts of your heart don't come out in words and others hear the evil that you're thinking Are you not glad that you do not have a conversation bubble over your head so that people can say, I know what you're thinking. I can see the very thoughts of your heart and how evil they are. The man, the woman, who is filled with the Spirit, recognizing the evil thoughts of his or her heart, says, I've sinned. Father, forgive me. Oh, I thank Thee that it didn't manifest itself in words or in actions. Guard the door of my lips. Guard my heart, out of which are the issues of life. But a man filled with alcohol speaks everything that comes to his mind. And so... Those perverse things that might be in our heart by nature come out in words and he makes his sin all the greater. A man who might come to the table of the Lord in the morning of the Lord's day and honor the sacrament might very well under the influence, blaspheme the holy things of God. A man who might at Bible study speak the nicest things about the Word of God and how it governs and controls his life might under the influence not only show by being drunk, but say things that indicate that really in his heart is not such a love for the Word of God. And if that ever happens to you or to me, beloved, so that the elders come to visit us, don't be surprised that they should say to you or to me, I don't believe you anymore when you speak highly of the Scriptures and when you speak the way a believer ought to speak. I believe you now when under the influence you blaspheme. And for that, you will be put under censure if you do not turn from sin. And why? Why do I say do not be surprised if that's their response to you? Because you are not living as one filled with the Spirit. In the fourth place, the text speaks of the physical consequences of drunkenness, the deceitfulness of wine as regards the body. And that's verse 34 in the first part of 35. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. They have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. First of all, the nausea and the dizziness, but even more, the lack of sound judgment of one who's drunk is brought out in verse 34. Think of one who's at the top of a mast of a ship. That lookout up there And he lies down in the midst of that mast. The mast is at the very top of the ship. The ship is in the sea. There are waves of the sea so that the ship is moving. And at the very top of the mast, you feel the motions of the ship. Most of all, this is poor perception to think that you can lie down and enjoy a nice rest in such a place. And it certainly will lead to physical consequences. Then when the text speaks of he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, it appears that the point isn't you're on a ship, but it appears that this man says, well, I'm tired. He's drunk after all. There comes a point when fatigue overtakes him. And there, that, those waves look like such a nice bed. I will go lie down on the waves and I will enjoy a nice rest there. Poor judgment. Judgment because those waves are not a bed. And to lie down in the midst of the sea is to drown. The physical consequences of which the verse speaks especially have this as their uniting factor, the inability to make sound judgments. And then, verse 35, the physical consequences, the wounds that he doesn't remember receiving. Now fifth, consequence of drunkenness and the folly of it is that the man who really loves the sin desires to return to it at the earliest opportunity. When shall I await? Now, in the case of the regenerated child of God, whom the Spirit sanctifies in the way of showing the folly of drunkenness, that question could be and mean this. It could mean, I see what a wretch I am. I see how I've turned away from the Word of God and the guidance that the Word of God gives. When will I awake? When will I come out of my drunken stupor? Because now I will pray for grace to be filled with the Spirit and live out of the power of the Spirit and hate the sin. But this man says, when shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. I can't wait to get drunk again. That's the folly of the drunkard. He's not sorry for his sin. And if he would show some outward remorse because you say, yes, but while you were drunk you beat me up. While you were drunk you did this or that that hurt another person. You caused an accident and somebody is very injured or maybe died. There might be some outward remorse, but not an accepting of responsibility. Not a grief that I've sinned against the law of God and others' lives have been harmed and changed. When shall I awake? Sorry for whatever I did, but when can I get drunk again? This is the drunkard's folly. Having set forth in five ways how the text drives the point home, I need to make three general overview comments of the text. First, is that the folly of which the text speaks is both physical and spiritual, as I pointed out. Consequences both for body and soul. Even the world understands that there are physical consequences. So, drink if you want, but don't drink and drive. For that you can go to jail. Smoke pot if you want. I do not encourage you to do that, but that's the mentality of the world. But don't drive while impaired. For that you can go to jail. The world recognizes the folly. Much more ought not the child of God. And then understand that the folly of drunkenness is more than that which the world recognizes. It is spiritual as well. In the second place, you see that in depicting this drunken man, the Holy Spirit is really making a laughingstock of him. Who hath woe? Who has sorrow? Look at that man. Look at his grief. Look at what a fool he is. You say, why would the Holy Spirit speak that way? And the answer is, because you and I are prone to think that sin is funny. Or you and I are prone to look at a sinner and maybe say, oh, oh, I'd better not do that, but not take to heart the depth of the sin. Not really be, see the heinousness of the sin in the light in which the Word of God would have us see it. And the Holy Spirit here is saying, the man is a fool. Do you want to be that man? Do you want to be that woman? In the third place, the effects of drunkenness are presented in the text as certain. At the last, it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. That's going to happen. It's not a prediction. It's not a possibility. It's a certainty. Thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. Yea, thou shalt be, the text goes on to say. In other words, the child of God who says, I'm going to try it, and understand there's a warning in Scripture against it, and I'm going to really try to take that warning to heart. I'm going to control how much I do and what effects it has on me. The child of God who does that finds you don't control sin and sin's consequences. To begin. To begin that path. To think that you can sin without being caught, as it were. But in the text, without being brought to this spiritual state of, of degradation, To think you can is part of your folly. It is certain that these consequences will come on you. Now, beloved, are we taking these lessons to heart? Is there anybody here tonight who as secretly and quietly as possible turns again and again to alcohol or to drugs, tries to keep it quiet, and yet has to admit that it has consequences on his own life and his family's life. And if there is such one here, are you going to go get help tomorrow? Because at the last, it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Secondly, I ask what example is being set in covenant and Christian homes by the parents? What are the children led to think they could quote-unquote get away with? If the child is caught by a police officer, or found in possession at a party or something? Will the father jump to the child's defense? There's been a misunderstanding somewhere. Or do fathers and mothers, both by their own use of alcohol in the home, by which I mean a moderate use, and the way they raise their children make clear, the Holy Spirit says... And because the Holy Spirit says, thus shall it be in this home. Is that the example that is set in our homes? And thirdly, do you excuse your sins? Do you excuse your children's sins? Sins that you wouldn't excuse in your enemy. Sins that you wouldn't excuse in that brother or sister. He or she is a brother or sister. But you don't love him or her. And if he or she were to sin, you would have the answer of the Scriptures. Do you excuse those sins in your heart? And in the lives of your children? Then you're no better than the drunkard who is a fool the Holy Spirit sets this text before us in order to admonish us to wisdom. The admonition is explicit in the text, which is striking. Many times in the Proverbs, the admonitions are implied. The Proverbs set forth a truth, and perhaps that truth over against its counterpart, and leads us to draw the conclusion. But there is an admonition in the text. Look not thou upon the wine... When it is red, don't be fooled. The admonition is negative, as is much of the law of God, because we are so easily fooled. But the admonition implies a positive. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red means understand what intoxicants are. Whether. They even may be used in the service of God. And when, in the light of Scriptures, you say they may, how they may be used in the service of God, that is wisdom. And that wisdom comes from Jesus Christ by His Spirit. That Jesus Christ, who admonishes us to wisdom and who is wisdom Himself, prepares a feast. He even speaks that way earlier in the book of Proverbs, chapter 9, verse 5. Wisdom hath prepared a feast. And whoso is simple, let him turn in hither, as for him that wanteth or lacketh understanding, she, this is wisdom, Christ, saith to him, Come, eat of my bread, and drink of the wine which I have mingled. And now referring to wine metaphorically, referring to the great spiritual joys that the Gospel gives us, and that being united to Christ by a true and living faith gives us, the call is to come enjoy those blessings. There's an antithesis between our text and the verse here that is saying, put aside the earthly wine. Certainly, it's immoderate use. And come drink of the wine that I have mingled. The wine that Christ has mingled is the banquet of fellowship and of joy that we have with God and with each other in Jesus Christ. It's the enjoyment of the forgiveness of sins on the basis of the shed blood of Christ. It's the hearing of the Gospel. It's the enjoying of the power each day to live to the glory and praise of God. Come drink of that wine. Often, one who turns to drunkenness is trying to escape some unhappiness in his or her life, something about his or her life that he cannot control. But if he would turn to the gospel, He wouldn't find all his troubles and griefs are gone, necessarily. But he'd find power to bear up the burden that the Lord has placed on him. So it's a relevant call. Come, eat of my bread, and drink of the wine which I have mingled. Put aside your attempt to find joy and happiness in earthly things, and find it in Jesus Christ. And then there's joy. There's blessedness for the soul. Instead of the misery of a guilty conscience, there's the joy of friendship and fellowship with God. There's happiness in the body. Instead of wounds without cause and other troubles, there is a consciousness that my body and my soul are redeemed by Jesus Christ and that. He's preparing them for heaven. One day we'll raise them and I will be without any misery and without any sin. Instead of beholding strange women, such a one will behold the bride of Jesus Christ and say, she is the woman that I love. Instead of uttering perverse things, such a one will sing the praises of Jehovah God. Instead of tarrying long at the wine, He will tarry long with His Saviour. There is a wine to drink the drinking of which is sweet and refreshing to the soul. But there is a different wine the drinking of which immoderately can only bring trouble and sorrow. Which wine Will you drink? Amen. For Father, which art in heaven, give us to drink that wine that Christ has mingled to enjoy His graces, His gifts, and His blessedness. To the praise and the honor and the glory of Thy name, fill us with Thy Holy Spirit that we may live a sanctified life. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.